The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Welcome, everyone. Nice to see everybody tonight, and really appreciative of Patrice Kelsch and and uh, Roger Jackson, who taught last week. Um, while I was on retreat at IMS, Inset Meditation Society in Massachusetts, I'll mention a little bit more about my treat, my retreat in a few minutes. And next week I'll be gone on retreat. I'll leave probably tomorrow and uh, going up to Arrow River Forest Hermitage, just across the Minnesota border on the way to Thunder Bay, Ajahn Punadamo's place, where they have uh, a number of cabins for lay people to practice. He's a Canadian monk, Buddhist monk, and... Uh, he comes and teaches here at Common Ground usually once a year in early December. So he'll be back hopefully this year. And uh, if you're ever interested in a place to practice and get support and have your own cabin in the wilderness, really, <laughs> out there about 50 miles north of Lake Superior, just across from, from Grand Portage into Canada. So I'll be there for a couple of weeks. Wynn, one of the founders of Common Ground, will be teaching next Sunday night. And Wynn Fricky here, and also my partner. So you'll be in good hands. So tonight I want to share a little bit about the retreat experience I was uh, just at. And some of you probably have picked up, if you've been around for a while, it doesn't take long to pick up that, you know, instead of uh, being a cult around uh, this or that, people here at Common Ground who've been around for a while, we're sort of a cult around retreat practice. Like the value of organizing our life for periods of time. It might be a morning sit, you know, 30 minutes, 60 minutes in the morning, or it might be going away for three months or going away for a weekend. But we're people who find value in breaking the habits, you know, because once we get into the groove of working and struggling with relationships and, you know, dealing with this and dealing with that and the ants coming into the kitchen and you know, the cat litter box needed to be changed. And it's like we get swept away by the details of life. It's just so easy for that to happen. So human beings, for a long time now, have found real value in breaking those patterns by, again, it can be just for 30 minutes, stepping away from the duties and responsibilities we imagine we have. And basically that weight, you know, Atlas with the world on his shoulders. Like, okay, for a period of time, I'm going to experiment, practice, not having that view of having to struggle with life, to work, to control, to fix, to get somewhere with my life. And shifting the mode to a mode of understanding. So the whole structure of a retreat or a morning sitting time or coming to common ground, the whole purpose for this period of time when you enter the space, sitting, engaging with the talk, the material of the talk, is now it's not about acquiring something, getting something. We're all in the mode of wanting to understand this. This experience of being a human being or the way that it is, the Dhamma, the way that it is. So, you know, if you're, if you hang around the center and the community long enough, you'll get 
you know, how much we value these times. However, you know, people who have children, young children, or have, you know, aging parents that you have to take care of, it's not necessarily that easy. You'd be lucky to get your 15 or 30 minutes a day or a couple days a week or whatever it might be. Other people who are more fortunate, you know, may be able to sit every day for an hour and get away several times a year for a more formal retreat experience. But one way or another, if we're going to, you know, the, the whole idea is like we want to learn something. And if we keep doing what we've always done, we keep getting what we've gotten before. We don't see anything new. So if we're going to understand something about the mind, the heart, that we haven't understood before, we need to change something. And the outer form, like sitting still for 45 minutes in the morning, you know, there's nothing special about sitting still for 45 minutes, but it creates the context for the shift to happen. You could just as easily do it walking your dog, except you'll forget to do it walking your dog. You know, so that's why we have to like build a center to do it. It's like getting ourselves to common ground on a Sunday night, it reminds us we're doing something other than like hanging out at home and doing what we've always done, getting what we've always gotten. Same thing with like a formal retreat or for a very few people, becoming a monk or a nun, a Buddhist monk or a nun, or some kind of hermit, where you radically simplified your life and you know, you're intentionally not getting involved in relationships and intentionally not acquiring, not having possessions or not many possessions. But if the form, if you just get attached to the form, it just becomes another weight in your life. Like, I'm a Buddhist monk or I'm somebody who lives with just a few possessions or, you know, I don't have a car. I mean... Some of you don't have cars and it's like so inspiring people who ride their bike everywhere and use public transportation. But that can either become really liberating or it can become this big ego thing. (laughs) You know, I'm the guy who doesn't have a car, you know, who uses a bike. And it can be just as much a trap as somebody who needs a Hummer or, you know, to feel adequate in life. If you don't know what a Hummer is, that's interesting. So just to say a little bit more about the uh, retreat experience, because part of that shift, the, the maybe the more specific way to talk about that shift that we're, we're trying to use these formalized, ritualized experiences like coming to Kam Ground on a Sunday night or putting aside 45 minutes, 60 minutes in the morning or going on a retreat, is that container, that sort of time we've set aside the actual practice is shifting our view, like not relating to our experience in the habitual ways that we relate to our experience, but practicing for a period of time or training the mind for a period of time to relate in a different way. So I want to talk about that. We call it sometimes in the Buddhist tradition, right view or wisdom. And the important thing is, you know, we often... We have lots of ideas about enlightenment or wise, saintly, free, awakened human beings. But we have to appreciate that, you know, there's a, there's a process for this 
movement towards freedom. And it begins first with just having different information in the mind. It's like we may not realize it, but we already have a view of like who I am and what's going on and what's important, our basic values. And so if we're going to use our sitting times and our retreat times to practice a different way of being, different way of relating, then it begins with having a different set of information than we normally draw on to relate to our experience. Like we have certain ideas about this experience of the body and mind. Like, for example, we all have this idea probably, it's happening to me. This life is happening to me. And I'm having a good life right now, or a good day, or I'm having a bad day. But for sure, it's happening to me. And that's just like some information we've been given. And then not only have we been given, we've integrated it. It sort of becomes our mode of operation. And we don't question it. So now we begin our practice by getting new information. Like in this tradition, we get new information from the teachings of the Buddha. There's this guy who lived 2,500 years ago who seemed to know a lot about his mind. And not only that, but he was able to articulate it articulate what he had come to understand about his mind in a way that even through translation and different culture and many, many centuries, his articulation of his mind experience and what he came to understand about his mind still is incredibly pragmatic and relevant and uh, sort of uh, surprisingly uh, radical, even today. It's like, both radical and pragmatic and sort of straightforward. It's really amazing that the teachings are so relevant, so in such a different context at this corner in Minneapolis in 2014 when they arose, you know, in a very different time and place. So, but we don't want to just believe those ideas from the Buddha. But we want to pick up that information like in the Buddhist tradition, there's a real emphasis on studying and not a lot. Not, you don't have to be a sort of a scholar, but like really getting the information because the transformation of view requires that we have new information and then we work with that information. Like instead of our usual information we're working from, which is I'm having an experience, all of these sensations in my body, all these thoughts in my mind and emotions, they're happening to me. And I either like them or don't like them. And if I like them, I try to make it last, the pleasant sensations, for example, or the pleasant emotions. And if it's unpleasant, I try to get rid of them. And that's, you know, that's the information I have, and now then it's been integrated. Now we could take up the Buddhist teachings, and he might say something like, as I mentioned in the guided meditation, that the story you could begin to replace our existing story with is, Objects are being known, right? That that's like the that that's a useful story to describe what's happening to us right now. There are objects of experience, and actually, what's more more relevant, they're being known. So there's objects of experience, and they're being known. I'm seeing, and the seeing is being known, because seeing is seeing relevant. Like I'm looking out, and I'm seeing colors and forms, and and then. Some of that color and form I'm perceiving, I'm recognizing as, you know, this person and that person, or I don't know that person. But the fact of seeing is only relevant because of this secondary 
experience that it's being known, presumably by me. That's part of the old story, right? But you see that hearing, seeing, thinking is only relevant because it's being known. Seeing isn't relevant if it's not being known. Hearing isn't relevant if it isn't being known. So part of the view from the Buddha that he's saying to study, to pick up, and to begin to use is experiences are being known, and that's what's relevant. So pay attention to that fact that experience is being known. Pleasant experience is being known. Unpleasant experience is being known. Neutral experience is being known. Don't forget that because it's relevant. So the Buddha might say, okay, here's your basic instructions. It doesn't take many more than five sentences. Experiences are being known. Mind-body experiences are being known. They come and go. All experiences are coming and going. They're of a dynamic nature. They're not static. Seeing isn't static. Hearing isn't static. Thinking isn't static. Feeling sensations isn't static. There's nothing static about the objects of experience. You can't make one last. You might think, well, no, but this pain in my knee, it's been lasting the whole hour. But it's the pain right now is not the pain 45 minutes ago. It may, because of the superficiality of your attention, it may seem like the same sensation, but it's not the same sensation. It's like one sensation followed by another, by another, by another. Even if it seems superficially to be the same sensation, it's not. Same with mind states and thoughts and sounds and sights. Nothing stays the same very long. So experiences are being known, they come and go, and then the last part, I guess only three sentences, the last part, and it's not self, meaning the objects that are being known, that are coming and going, although the old story is they're me or mine, we could try this new information, this new story, no, not self, it's just a natural organic expression of all these innumerable causes and conditions that are unfolding here. We don't have to use the story that they're happening to me. This is my thoughts. This is my knee pain. This is my feeling of insecurity. We could instead see the insecurity or any experience as just a natural expression of innumerable causes and conditions like what makes the pain in the knee or the maybe you're a little warm right now so you feel a little heat in the body so what is it about the heat in the body that's personal it's just an experience that's being known that's either changing quickly or slowly so we could see that as a, a an expression of nature not me or mine not something that's personal. Now, so the Buddha says, the first part of wisdom, that's really what I'm going through tonight, three aspects of wisdom. So the first aspect of wisdom is just to have new information or a new story, a new point of view. But just at this point, it's just borrowed wisdom, right? It's just like we hear something, like you're hearing a talk tonight, and a lot of you have heard these teachings before, so this is not a new view or a new story. So you go, okay, there's this story. And just to now learn that enough or memorize that enough so that then in your lived experience, whether you're formally meditating on retreat or just living your life, 
then you can, in a sense, regurgitate it, bring up what you've memorized. Okay, here I am riding my bike home, or here I am cooking my dinner, or here I am interacting with a friend. And then it's like we try out relating to the experience from that learned view. Okay, let me try out the Buddha's view. Okay, so here I am doing whatever I'm doing, like giving a talk at Common Ground on Sunday night, and maybe I can notice or um, integrate or apply that teachings of the Buddha. So instead of I'm Mark Nunberg giving a Dharma talk on Sunday night at Common Ground and all the implications of that more traditional story, I could be reflecting, you know, using that new set of information, objects are being known, seen as being known. There's some maybe emotional quality being known. Hearing my voice is being known. So whatever I might be feeling and seeing and experiencing right now, they are objects of experience and they're being known. This is all something that's being known. And then there's so much that then begins to be learned about the the knowing. Like I mentioned a few things during the guided meditation, like it's not something that I or anyone can turn on and off. Like right now, there is knowing happening. And I can either be consciously remembering that knowing is happening, or I can be unconscious of the fact that knowing is happening. But knowing is happening regardless. right? So we're training the mind to keep recalling that knowing is happening. And that knowing isn't personal. It's not something I have to do. It's actually effortless. We don't have to work to hear the clap. You know, the knowing of the clap, the knowing of that experience, is just was there. Unless you were really involved in thinking, like not connected with the knowing. So now I can start using that right view, the teachings of right view. So I can be giving a talk, even doing something so you know, interpersonal, like giving a talk, which is a more challenging place to practice than if you were just sitting, walking, I mean, sitting and breathing or doing some walking practice in a more simple environment. It'd be a little bit easier to reflect that all objects are being known. The objects of the mind and body are being known. Sensations are being known. Sights are being known. Hearing is being known. Thinking is being known. But even in this context, and I can notice that Objects are being known, and they constantly are coming and going. It's a dynamic, transforming, unfolding experience here of sight and sound and thought, emotion, sensation. And I can also reflect that, and it's not personal. Like even something seemingly as personal as giving a talk can be observed as an impersonal process. Like even as I'm giving the talk and, you know, and the mind is always thinking about what it's going to say next, there could be an ongoing reflectiveness of how it's all happening on its own. Like, I don't have to construct a sense of a mark who's got to figure out what he's going to say next. You know how it is. It's like if you're skiing down a mountain or whatever kind of physical activity like riding your bike, you don't have to put a self in the middle of it. Now I've got to push down on the pedal. Now I've got to lift up on that pedal. Oh, what about the other foot? Oh, I can push. <laughs> you know, we don't have to we don't have to sort of make it a self 
project. I mean, if we did that everywhere in life, it would be unbearable. So much of life, actually, now the question is, can we realize those times in life when we're not imposing the self-project on it? Can we really notice the absence of the self-project? Like how life is just happening on its own, including all this, what we would say from a conventional point of view is me doing it, but even that is happening on its own. Like the talk, conventionally speaking, we say, I'm giving a talk, but the actual Subjective experience could be a talk is happening. You know, there's mental activity and physical activity and this sort of dynamic of interacting, whatever that is, as we see and hear and respond to each other's body language and stuff. Like all this is happening on its own. And it's just a question of how much we're going back to the old view and projecting or constructing a sense, and it's happening to me. So this is... The second part of wisdom, the first part is just getting new information that's different than our conventional view that's happening to me. And I either like it or don't like it. And if I don't like it, I do this. And if I like it, I do this other thing. Grasp it, try to make it last. And we replace it with new information. Actually, what we know is objects are being known. They come and go, and they're not self. It's just nature happening here. And we work with that. So we're applying that information with our experience. We're sort of using it to understand the actual experience of the present moment. So this is the real bulk of meditation practice and just generally this path of awakening where we're taking the new information all day long, ideally, and we keep applying it to our experience of the present moment. And we're seeing like what effect is there when we apply this new information, this sort of Buddha's view of the world, what is the effect on how we, how the life is being lived? You know, does, do things work better? More love, more kindness, more skill, more patience, more freedom, you know, or not, or the opposite. And the more we keep working on that application, if these teachings are actually transforming, and, you know, we don't actually know until we have this third kind of wisdom, which in this tradition we call, in the Buddhist tradition, we call insight. And some of you know in uh, the West, Theravada Buddhism, which is one of the three big schools of Buddhism, um, coming from places like Thailand and Burma and Sri Lanka and uh, Cambodia and Laos. Here in the West, it's sometimes still called Theravada Buddhism. That just means the um, teachings or the tradition of the elders. Tara uh, is elders, means the sort of, yeah, of elders, and Vada uh, is something like path, the path of the elders or teachings of the elders. So Theravada, sometimes in the West, is called insight meditation or Vipassana is the word for insight, Vipassana meditation. So you might hear someone say, oh yeah, Common Ground Meditation Center, it's a Vipassana meditation center or it's an insight meditation center. It just means it's coming out of the Theravada Buddhist tradition. So there's a big deal about insight. And what is insight? So this is where there's a, uh, a turning or a flip from taking this new information, applying it to our experience, seeing that life actually is working better. So we're, we're really remembering this new information and integrating it more and more and more. But it's still from the self point of view, like I, Mark, 
really appreciating this new information, finding it really useful and allowing me to be more skillful and free in life. This is a very common place for us to be practicing, but it's still from a self-point of view. But at some point, it flips from the mind dependent on the information, the intellectual or conceptual view, like the conceptual understanding that there is no self at the center. So that's a very skillful story, but it's still a story that I have, that I'm using to be skillful in life. So there's a flip from that to the direct experience, immediate experience of no center, no self-center. And so we call that an insight, where we move, the mind moves from some dependence on a conceptual view, dependent on its idea of things, to the mind not dependent, because now the mind is taking refuge in the way it is. You know, we say the Dhamma, the way it is. Not on its idea of the way that it is. And that's always a surprising thing. When the mind goes from that second stage of wisdom to the third stage of wisdom, the defining quality, like if you want to know if you've ever had a spiritual insight, the defining quality is the mind is, especially with the initial insight, it's always surprised by the insight. And it, even if you've been like practicing devotedly for a decade and you really understand the Buddha's view intellectually, you studied it, you memorized it, and you've really integrated it, you've applied it, you really see how it makes your life work better. You really get it. But when you actually get it in this other way, it's surprising. And uh, somebody asked Saida Utejaniya, this very wonderful, powerful, well-known Burmese meditation teacher that led the retreat that I was just at in Massachusetts. Um, somebody asked him, like, it's like a simple question, like, what's insight? What do you mean by insight? <laughs> and he gave this nice analogy. He said, it's like a magician. You know, when a magician throws his or her gloves in the top hat, you know, and then they reach in and they pull out the rabbit, you know, we're surprised. Like, we didn't expect there really to be, a, like, how did that happen? That's not what I expected. And it's a little bit like that when uh, we have an insight. It's like, that's amazing. So even though I might know and have known for years and years that, yeah, it makes a lot of sense. I mean, intellectually, it makes a lot of sense, even though it's not our way of sort of living. But intellectually, it makes a lot of sense that there isn't a separate self. Right? I mean... Although it feels like it, but when we think about it, like, no, it's just nature happening here. It's it's just energy happening, like from a scientific physics point of view. It makes sense that, well, it's just different frequencies of energy at play. And this idea of separation is just a construction of our thinking minds or something like that. I mean, that makes, there's a lot of, it's like reasonable thing to think. But when we actually experience that directly, it really surprises the mind that that's the way that it is. Because even though it makes sense, it makes sense from a personal point of view. Like me as a separate individual really believes that it's not that way. You see, it's kind of contradictory. Like, But that's how it is. That's we, There's no way to avoid that place in practice where we're learning the teachings, we're appreciating the teachings, we're integrating them, 
They're making sense. They're really helping us live a better life. But it's still a self-centered project. I'm trying to learn the teachings. I'm really benefiting from the teachings. I'm hoping that the teachings lead to more freedom and skill in my life, become a better person. Still feel self-centered, and it, that's just how it is. And there's really no nothing to do but to keep doing the practice until this flip starts to happen. Because that's the nature of this view, is that it undermines itself. It undermines this view. As skillful as this view is, like the Buddha's view of the world, that it's just objects being known, they come and go, and they're not self, as skillful as that view is, it's still a view, but it's a view that will eventually undermine and the mind's fixation on that view or the mind's holding dependence on that view. Does that make sense? So that's why we just keep working at it. And that's actually, the, like I was saying, that's the real work of the practice is how to, in our busy lives, our complicated lives, with all the pain of loss and the pain of disappointment and the pain of insecurity, you know, all the different things that distract us and all the exciting things that distract us, you know, having this organic garden in our backyard and when I get that together or grow my own food or when I, you know, make my house completely energy independent and, you know, find the right person and, you know, figure out how to, feed my carnivore cat food that doesn't require me to kill other animals. <laughs> you know, all these intractable problems of human existence, like what to feed your cat, <laughs> you know, then we'll be safe or then we'll be, you know, we'll be set or we'll be able to relax. But instead to really work on this level of transforming our view, instead of fixing the whole world, like the Buddha used this image, as a human being, we have two alternatives. We can, given that there are a lot of sharp objects on the ground, we can either cover the entire earth in leather so that we don't step on anything sharp, or we can make a pair of shoes. And then it doesn't matter where we go walking. And it's the same thing with wisdom. It's either we can develop this wisdom, or we have to fix the whole world, which is impossible. Like, remove insecurity from the world. Like, how are we going to do that? It's not going to happen. So this whole process then involves moving through these three stages of wisdom. And the real process for doing that, getting the information, integrating the information, and having insight, the direct experience, is what we call mindfulness or awareness. It's the basic context for working on these three things. And like I said, you can't force the insight, but as often as you need to, you can go back and get new information or get the information that you've forgotten. Go back and hear another talk, pick up the book again, make yourself remember what's going on. There's really a place and practice for thinking. Thinking is not the evil one the evildoer. Sometimes people who get involved in Buddhist meditation practice think that thinking is the bad guy. But the thinking that's the bad guy is thinking that doesn't lead to anything but more thinking. You know, So that the thinking that leads to endless proliferation, of course, is debilitating. It's, 
it weakens the mind, it exhausts the mind, it ties the heart and mind, you know, energetically into knots. When we just are, I used to tell the story of how um, we've done a lot of renovation in our house, but before we did it, for years and years, I thought about how we should renovate the house. You know, it's like a lot of us, we have these minds that like to plan and like to, you know, spatially sort of figure out problems. We've got problem-solving minds. I mean, mil- probably millions of years of evolutionary effect, you know, all, not all, but almost all living beings have problem-solving minds <laughs> because those of us, those beings that didn't, didn't survive very long. So, you know, now, a lot of, because of civilization, a lot of the problems have been solved, but we still want to solve problems, you know. And usually we want to solve our spouse's problems, <laughs> or friend's problems, or sister and brother's problems, and other people's problems, because we know what to do. <laughs> so, and of course, it's really painful. So, my, mindfulness, this awareness practice, it's creating the context to just not keep falling into that wasteful use of life, where we're just thinking about things that don't need to be thought about. You know, thinking is one of, it's like a a tool, like a hammer or screwdriver, one of those new, what are they called, saws or sawzalls? What are they called? Sawzall. Sawzall? You know, they're amazing. I have never used one, but I've seen them being used. (laughs) It's like... And, uh, but the thing is, the tool itself doesn't have its own intelligence. It's like the sawzall doesn't know what needs to be done with it. But if it sort of becomes the self, then it will neurotically feel like it, in order to be functional, you just got to do things. <laughs> just cut things. Or if you're a hammer, you know, you just got to keep pounding things. Or if you're a problem solver, you just got to keep problem, you know, solving problems. So the thinking is like that. It's a tool. It's not a self. It's a tool that is to be picked up and used when it there's a purpose. And then when there isn't useful, then then to be put down. And so awareness, mindfulness, is what will recognize when the thinking is functional, useful. Basically, useful thinking is aiming the mind in the direction of understanding. And this is part of right view. I could give, that would be the fourth sentence in right view, you know. Objects are being known. They come and go. They're not self. It's nature. And what's relevant in life is not any kind of acquisition, including acquiring enlightenment or awakening or whatever you might want to call it. What's relevant in life is understanding the way it is. Undeepening understanding or transforming understanding so that the mind's understanding is in alignment with the way that it is. There's no naivete, no idealism, no uh, wrong view, like a view that isn't in alignment. It's all been teased out. So that's our allegiance is to understanding, not to acquiring the perfect life, becoming the perfect mark you know, with the perfect house, having solved all the problems in the perfect way so that I don't feel guilty about anything because I have a car that works on water, you know, (laughs) and all the, it was built out of natural materials 
that decompose and turn into hummus <laughs> or something we can eat. So this is like how we think, how I think. It's like I want that perfect utopian life where I feel safe and good about my existence. That's an acquisition. Now, in a more gross way, you might want just a lot of power or you know, a lot of wealth or a lot of love, a lot of recognition. But this fourth part of wisdom is really understanding that actually anything we acquire will come and go and is impersonal and not self. So any, no matter how you might conceive a path, a life of acquisition, of getting something or getting rid of something, it's not going to be helpful unless it's about understanding. So that's part of the shift. And then, then, then we really appreciate mindfulness, like how relevant that is. Because with mindfulness, what we mean by mindfulness is that we're taking refuge in the awareness this is being known. And then in that context, it's like so much easier to notice when the activity of mind is useful, meaning it's in the service of understanding, and when the activity of mind is not in the service of activity. I mean, it's still not easy, but it's a lot easier when we're mindful, when we're tracking experience moment to moment. Mindfulness really implies that it's continuous. As useful as it is to be mindful in a moment, it's not really going to change our life in a significant way unless we can string together moments, sequence of moments of mindfulness. So it's like being mindful, being awake, and awake, and awake. In a way, because in order to understand whether the activity of mind is useful or not, we have to see what the implications are. Like we have to see what the mind is doing and then what comes from that. Cause and effect, basically, right? So, like, if I have a particular attitude of mind right now, which we all have some attitude of mind, um, like, like one typical attitude of mind when we're hearing the teachings is, this is really good. I'll get to this later when this other part of my life gets fixed. You know, like when I get done with school or when I take care of my relationship problems or, you know, when I get on retreat again or tomorrow morning when I sit. Uh, we keep putting it off. We practice postponement. So that's one attitude of mind. But if we're mindful, we'll notice that attitude that I'll do it later. You know, and it will be ridiculous because that's actually what it is the mind will see clearly that it's an aversion to doing it now. It's like, for example, we all know, if I gave you a multiple choice question, you know, is kindness good? A, B, bad? C, both? <laughs> or something like that. You know, we'd know the answer. Kindness is good. But why not now? You know, we all know that non-attachment I mean, if you're showing up at a Buddhist meditation center, you know that non-attachment isn't healthy. But what about non-attachment now? Like, why aren't we reflecting on that, if we really know or think that we know that it's being kind, not getting attached, then we should be working with that right now. Or like wanting to understand or 
um, valuing, understanding the mind. Well, this is a perfect, any moment will do in terms of deepening our understanding of the mind. We don't need a different moment to learn something about the mind. We keep postponing it like there will be a better moment later that I can really get to understand the mind. This is like endemic in, in Asian cultures, you know, traditionally Buddhist cultures, is that over the centuries, what's crept in in a lot of Buddhist cultures is this idea that this is no longer a suitable time to cultivate wisdom in the way that the Buddha taught. So instead, I'll cultivate what in Buddhism we call merit, like I'll do good deeds, I'll do a lot of generosity and uh, other good deeds, so that in a future life, I'll be born in a more suitable time where there are better teachers and better opportunities to practice being free, you know, practice for enlightenment or something like that. So it's just another, like, uh, it gets institutionalized, this postponement. But we want to practice now. So this uh, commitment to awareness or to mindfulness is really a commitment to the continuity of like this, we're putting awareness first before everything else. It's like this is, in terms of our values, not just our theoretical values, but our actual values. That being awake, being aware that this is what's happening. This is what's being known. This is what's going on. This is what the mind is doing. This is how the mind is relating. It's not about judging it. It's not about controlling. It's like I'm not knowing this is how it is in order to fix it. That's it. We just need to value the knowing of it. See, this is why we don't we mistrust it because we think it's a lot of work. Like if I know what the mind is doing, then I've got to fix the mind. Like if I know that my mind is being judgmental or being lazy or being, you know, jealous or being lustful or whatever. Well, then I have to, then I have to sort of construct this whole kind of parental energy that will then, you know, blame myself or whatever and have to fix it or have to deny it because it's so bad. But this commitment to mindfulness as this context for the development of wisdom, it's wisdom needs one ingredient to grow. What does wisdom need to grow? It needs good data. It's like the only thing in the way of wisdom growing is the mind not getting good data. So wisdom is just the cumulative effect of the mind collecting good data. Honest, non-biased data. The way it is in the body, in the mind. So that's what awareness is, is we're relying on this very natural process of mind that we call knowing or awareness. And as I mentioned in the guided meditation, it's just happening. It's not like you've got to do it. We think we have to do it. And that's okay if you feel to some degree, especially in the beginning, that you have to be mindful. But eventually you realize that knowing is just happening. But we're relying on it by paying attention to it or remembering that knowing is happening because that allows for this collection of data. It's like the mind is just accumulating all these data points. And eventually these data points start having an effect. They overwhelm 
wrong view. And we really start, and when we combine these new data points from the mind just seeing things as they are, seeing the way it is, with the information we've gotten, you know, just on that basic basis of study and hearing talks and reading books of the Buddhist teachings. So we've got this new information. We're collecting data, good, honest data, and we start to see how they line up, how the view that we've learned is really lining up with the data that the mind is collecting. And it's that dynamic, that integration between the data, seeing things as they are, with the view that allows for insight to happen. And then there's a lot of energy that comes out of insight, which just helps us to keep remembering to be mindful. And this is really the the development of wisdom. One way to think about the development of wisdom in terms of these three steps of new information, the application of that information to our experience, the arising of insight, which we can't make happen, but will happen with greater frequency if we do the first two. All of this requires the continuity of mindfulness. So whenever we lose it, we just start again. So even though you might have a daily sit, even though you might be able to get on Buddhist meditation retreats from time to time, all of that formal stuff, formal practice, is in support of cultivating a 20-hour, if you get four hours of sleep, or an 18-hour-a-day practice. If you get six hours of sleep or 16, you should be. we can be practicing 16 hours a day. We really want to have that aspiration. So that means that our practice has to have a light touch. If we make it this heavy thing, we'll get exhausted, and then we'll just give up. So we have to have a really light, loving, forgiving, spacious way of practicing so we can do it all day long. And every time we lose it, we just start over again. Because all we're reminding ourselves is like, is being known. Sitting here listening listening to a talk by Mark is being known. Whatever emotions or attitude you have now, it's just something being known. Whatever sensations there are in the body, they're just sensations being known. Whatever sights are being seen, they're just sights being known. So this reflective understanding that this is all being known here and now. How much effort does that really take? It's more a matter, it's really just the effort of remembering that this is being known. This is a life of experiences being known. That creates the context for wisdom to develop. And not being reflective, not forgetting that this is an experience being known, that means in a way we're on automatic pilot. We're not capable of learning because this just life is happening, but there's no understanding or no space that understands. Oh yeah, this is happening. So I'll leave it here. We've got about 10 minutes. It'd be nice to hear some questions or comments from your own practice you'd like to share with the community. What comes up? Your own experience of the development of wisdom in your life? Yeah, Ben. So, in, in the moment of insight, um, which, which I think of as a moment of change, what, what happens to the mind in that moment? Does it, does it fundamentally change in that moment? Yeah, it does. It depends, of course, on, you know, there's a whole range of intensity or <clears throat> the depth of an insight. 
generally there's a lot of little insights, and so the effect is cumulative. But by definition, an insight does change the mind. But some people will have a big insight, and so there could be a radical change, like some of you, because he's quite popular. Eckhart Tolle wrote a very well-known book, The Power of Now. Kind of made a big splash about 10 years ago. And he's kind of become well-known through Oprah. But anyway, um, you know, he, he apparently, the way he describes it, had a pretty big insight all at once. And, and it took him a number of years. He basically lived a little bit like a homeless person for a while, just like not being able to integrate the effects of the insight for a number of years before he could kind of really live it out, um, what his mind had come to understand. That's more unusual than a more gradual thing. But what happens is the mind experiences something. Um, the mind experiences this free from its dependency on its idea of this. And so it's like a paradigm shift where the mind, you know, in a way it's like the mind sees a different master. Initially, as an ordinary human being, our mind has a master, which is what it thinks is true. Now, that can shift. We can have like really neurotic ideas of what we think is are true and then relatively skillful ideas of what we think are true. So there's a lot of movement in that world that the mind is, in one way or another, always dependent on what it thinks is true or who I think I am or what I think is going on here. But when with the insight in a Buddhist context, an insight means there's a, a different master, which in Buddhism we'd call Dhamma, the way it is. So it's an, a non-conceptual, unconditioned knowing. So it's like the mind is realizing its independence from concepts. It's not that it can't come, I use concepts appropriately, but it's not orienting, it's not thinking the hammer defines who it is. A hammer is just something you use to pound nails. So thinking or concepts or ideas are still useful, but that's they have nothing to do with who I am. So any conception of who I am, it's not relevant when you have insight. But, you know, the, that to really get that takes maybe many insights, kind of accumulative. Initially, it's just an experience of freedom. Like the initial, for most people, the initial insights is, you know, you're sitting practicing. Whether you call it practice, whether you think you're practicing isn't important. But if your mind is in the present, knowing that this is being known, and applying some of this new information, like it's just stuff happening, just stuff being known. And then an, a little insight might arise, which is the mind just experiences a lot of space, a lot of freedom for no good reason. It's not like all of a sudden something was difficult and now it's over, so you're free because of that. But the mind let go of something it didn't know it was holding. Like it was holding an idea that this is happening to me. And then just quietly, not even intentionally, it's not like somebody lets that go. That idea that this is happening to me, this is about me, it just goes away from the mind. The mind stops thinking that or stops conceiving that. And so then the mind experiences freedom from that concept, that dependence. So initially insight is just the experience of freedom. And the mind not might un the mind probably won't understand why the freedom has arisen. 
Insight gets deeper when the mind really starts connecting the dots, like why is the freedom arising? Then it understands. And see, then it can, that can change how the mind then relates to experience. Because now it understands that, oh, I don't have to take my ideas of things and grasp them as me or mine. They're still thoughts, still opinions, still this and that, you know, planning, judging, comparing. But I hold it, the mind holds it more lightly. So that's how it changes. It revolutionizes the mind's relationship to conceptions, to fixed views. And that doesn't, that, as long as you keep doing the practice, you won't go backwards. If you stop doing the practice, unless the insight's really deep, you can lose sort of what the mind has learned. Yeah, thanks, Ben, for bringing that up. Other thoughts that come to mind? Yeah, Nina, why not? Um, how do you integrate action into all this? Because you have, you have to live your life, and like, you know, I'm constantly, I'm a teacher, so I'm always doing with kids, and like back and forth, back and forth, like how I respond to that. So my life is full of action. We all have like a J-O-B or whatever. Mm-hmm. And so... What's J-O-B? Yeah. You know, job. Oh. <laughs> Is that how it's spelled? <laughs> it's just kind of like the nuts and bolts. Yeah. Like. Yeah. But but it may be more like not so much not acting, but just a priority of value. So like in the activity of being a teacher or being an activist or being a puppeteer or being a whatever artist, valuing the awareness and the development of wisdom as high as anything else. So that's the priority. And then the context for your practice is in being the teacher and being the activist and being the artist, right? So it doesn't mean you have to change anything in terms of your outward life unless you decide to change things. But the idea is no matter what I do as a human being, or all of a sudden Minneapolis becomes a war zone or becomes paradise on earth or somewhere in between, whatever happens here, it will be our practice. So that the events that come and go in our life, they're just the context to continue mindfulness and to support the development of wisdom, the transformation of view. That's the context. And it doesn't really matter... The context, how do we know that you turning, you know, turning away from teaching and becoming a Buddhist nun, like that, how would you know if that's going to be more effective in terms of this development of the practice than continuing to do? You won't actually know. It's like Joseph Campbell once said, I, I think it gets misused, this line from him. If you don't remember, he was a great scholar um, around mythology and he had this great series of interviews with Joseph, uh, with uh, Bill Moyers back probably now 20 years ago almost, uh, The Power of Myth on PBS. and um, But he had one great line, which he said, follow your bliss. You know, And I think it gets misunderstood a lot. But what he, I think what one of the things he meant by that is it's less important what you do, so you might as well do what gives you energy because you can learn the, about the mind, about the heart in any context, but you need energy. You need to be alive in your life to learn from it. So you might as well do what brings you alive, but it's not about doing what you want to do. It's about learning about the heart or mind in the context of doing 
what in a sense we've been built to do. I mean, we kind of have personalities. We have, you know, life has set, been set in motion in a particular way. There is a trajectory and some things will be kind of come our way. So why not say yes to it, especially if it's something that brings us alive? Yeah, that's minor. I think we have to leave it here. It's 8.30, so let's just take a few seconds, just enough time to take a breath together. And appreciate the community. Appreciate these ancient teachings that exist today for us because so many women and men, so many people generation by generation in their busy lives, did their practice as best they could, shared it. So now we get to be the recipients. Now it's our turn to do the best we can to cultivate these teachings, transform the mind and heart, to experience real freedom and wisdom and love. And may this be so. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.